Welcome to the Infinite Worlds Podcast. Yo, kids, it's Nick the Tooth, and today I am joined by my co-host and publisher of the Infinite Worlds magazine, Winston Ward. All right, all right. Here we are with another episode of Infinite Worlds Podcast. Stoked all to right. be back. How are you doing, Winston Ward? I'm doing great, Nick. How are you doing, man? I'm doing good, man. I'm doing good. It is uh, Friday. How was uh, you ready for the weekend? Oh, couldn't be couldn't be more ready, man. It was a long week. Uh, loving getting a chance to sit down and talk about cool sci-fi stuff with you. It kind of helped me decompress, man. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Well, today we are going to talk about Blade Runner. Definitely one of my favorite, favorite movies and one of my favorite uh, sci-fi universes. Totally. First, first, we're going to talk about the man, Philip K. Dick. We're going to go through his bio. Then we are going to go into the book, which forms the basis for the whole universe, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Then we're going to go to the OG movie. And after that, the sequel, 2049. So it should be a good one. Yeah, a lot to discuss. A lot to discuss for sure. But before we dive in, dude, what are you reading or watching or listening to as far as sci-fi goes? Well, let's see. I'm doing... uh... Kurt Vonnegut's Sirens of Titan. It's my first time reading that one. I've read a bunch of his books, but this is my first time reading Sirens of Titan. I'm about two-thirds of the way through that right now. Uh, I just listened to an audiobook of World War Z. Um, that was interesting. Uh, you have a, uh, The zombie phase is sort of like, you know, in my past or whatever, but I, I never read it, and I thought it would be worth a shot. It was pretty good. Pretty interesting. Was it, was it a lot different than the movie? I've never I've seen the movie. The I've heard that the movie is terrible. What? I've, I've, I don't know. I've never, I've never seen it. I heard it was bad. I'm not judging. No, dude. That movie is so good, okay, all man. Right. It's one of my favorite sci-fi. I mean, one of my favorite zombie movies okay, ever. Okay, all right. Uh, I will, uh, I'll will. i give it a chance. I'll go to the mat on well, that this, one. That's, that's cool Ugh. because I've actually read the book now, so I can, uh, have that, I can carry that into the movie watching experience. So I will. I'll put it on the short list then. Yeah, it was really good, man. It was really good. Who was the author of that again? Um, was it it's Brooks? It's Mel right? Brooks' son, Mel Brooks? Max Brooks. Who I, I he he wrote yeah he wrote a sort of a tongue in cheek survival manual for zombies that I read when I was like twenty one or twenty two, and I thought it was you know great, especially at the time when zombies were still like it was before The Walking Dead had blown up and everything. So zombies were still kind of you know kind of a niche or whatever. Uh, yeah. And, you know, for a 21-year-old guy. And I liked it a lot. But And I'd always heard that I should read World War Z. And it was it was a lot different than I expected. It's really just a series of interviews. All The whole book is just, yeah, it's just a series yes. of interviews. So I don't know. If, I think the movie, I think the movie deviates from that. It's like about. I don't, yeah, I don't think it's even close. I think it's, and I don't think, I don't know how happy he was with it. I read some interviews and it didn't sound like he was, but. You know, oh, yeah. What do you really expect? You didn't really set out. How often are writers happy with the movies that get made of their work? You know. <laughs> well, I think Blade Runner is the, the one exception, and we're gonna oh, yeah. we're gonna get to that. Um, for me, I have been uh, you know we're we're preparing for a Vonnegut uh, podcast, and so I've got a couple of Vonnegut books, and I. Um, I slipped into, I have to say, I listened to, I was reading a few of his different books and I was like, eh, eh, eh. And I jumped back on my Kindle to Slaughterhouse Five and I read Beautiful. it for like two days. 
and I'm just like, oh, it really is. It's genius. The book is freaking genius. So stoked on that. And then I also um, have been watching Avenue Five on HBO. It is a comedy sci-fi uh, uh, series, and it's freaking awesome, man. It's I really wish I had so HBO. I, I expected uh, it to. Be. I know, I know. Dude, you got to get HBO, man. You. you got to between Watchmen and there's just so much on there right now that's good I'm kind of like looking at all the different series and I'm like man HBO is just hitting their stride with um, with the new Pope with Jude Law and, uh, and Malkovich I haven't watched any of that yet that looks really good and we've got a uh, documentary on there that looks really good too called McMillan so there's a lot going on there I am uh, pumped on it and also I started watching on HBO again a series called The Outsider, right. which is phenomenal, based on a Stephen, Stephen King book. So um, HBO is uh, is where it's at. Anyways, let's dive into All this. Right, let's get to Blade Runner. All right, here we go. All right, we are online again, man. I'm stoked to be back. I absolutely. Uh, I just spent a week in the. Uh, in the woods of Nashville, Tennessee, just completely getting away from all electronics. And uh, it was so freaking rad. It was so needed, dude. I can't believe I what a detox that was. It's really funny that you went and did a uh, tech-free getaway, and then you come back, and then we're going to record a podcast about Blade Runner. Which is, <laughs> you know, it's like the exact opposite of a tech-free getaway. It's about the, you know, the merging of the two things instead. So how ironic! Oh my, I know. You know, it's so crazy because it, it's it's really funny because it was really kind of a meditative retreat where I was like, man, I got to get away and recharge. And I was thinking about this. Um, I was telling someone there about this uh, awesome documentary that for a while was on. Netflix and it was by like the first it was about the first Indian guru sage to ever come over to the United States and he gave a, it was like the 20s or 30s and his name is Paramahansa Yogananda and he gave a speech in which he said at that point Americans you are way too distracted mm. to experience bliss oh yeah now now think about this this is like the 20s 30s <laughs> <laughs> they didn't even have television. <laughs> what would he say today? I, I'm sitting in my like podcast studio and I've got like a 15 inch MacBook next to an iPad, you know, a brand new iPad. And I'm looking at three different screens and my phone. It's like, oh my gosh, it's so, you true. know, that's, that's what, that's the subject that we're going to, uh, you know, consider so often as the podcast goes on, but it's definitely one that we're going to consider today. And it's, that merging of technology and humanity and you know what where the line actually is uh as our human experience uh what it, part of it is human and what part of it is artificial and um yeah and i think that's uh you know a a, a pretty broad subject and i think philip k dick did a lot of uh exploring that and i think i i you know as i'm a big fan of philip k dick so i'd like to explore that too so look 
No, and I, I, I need to, before we start, man, I have to thank you because I, while I was always aware of Philip K. Dick, I hadn't really read anything of his, you know, just the here or there, just sampling short stories or whatever it was. But um, I really got into Do Android's, you know, Dream of uh, Electric Sheep, and which was the, 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 the basis for Blade Runner. And I was blown away, man. It was, it was so cool because I had no idea how closely it, it like the movie clung to this. It was really rad book, man. I really enjoyed it. But before that, tell me a little bit, you know, you're a Philip K. Dick fan. So give me a little bio on him. Okay. Uh, well, Philip K. Dick is a California based writer. He started his career in the late 1940s, early 1950s. He was at Cal Berkeley and uh, he just generally didn't have interest in, you know, following the, square routine that had been set aside for him. His mind was too open, even at a young age. And uh, he started writing science fiction instead, sort of uh, dropped out of college and uh, went exploring the life of a science fiction writer. And even early on in his career, his uh, works were, you know, more primitive versions of his later novels where he started exploring that idea of what it means to be, to be in general, and uh, as his career went on, he became, you know, more able to tell that story through parable, through novel, through short story. And um, later on in his career, uh, he ended up having a psychotic break, and that changed uh, the direction of his writing and uh, really, I think, the future of science fiction after that. But the book we're going to talk about today actually is before that took place. It was one of his uh, more famous published novels published in 1968. Do androids dream of electric sheep? Uh, but hold on, hold on. I, I, I really want to hear, cause I read a little bit about it. I want to hear about this psychotic. Okay. All right. Well, I, foremost, because I found it. It's if you're interested, cool if you're, you're going to talk about Philip K. Dick, you really have to divide his uh, career into two phases. And it's the pre-psychotic break phase and the post-psychotic break phase. And before that, he was writing tons of great work and very famous books. And he was already pretty well known in the science fiction community. But one day, while he was at his home in California, he had some drugs delivered to his home. And uh, not uh, illegal drugs, like prescription drugs. And Because um, apparently they used to do that. I don't think that's a thing anywhere anymore. Uh, but the Dude, I, I honestly, I had a job when I was in high school oh, okay. where so I, I guess delivered that... drugs, like from, from a pharmacy. And I, I tell I'm a little digression here, but one of the craziest experiences of my life was I was probably on the job like two months and they're like, okay, here's a delivery that you have to bring out to this mental facility. And so I'm like, oh, okay. So I go out to this mental facility right. that's in the woods and do... When I, when I drive up and I park the, the delivery truck and I get out, there are mental patients all over the grounds, like in white gowns, like zombies. And it was like something out of like Halloween with Mike Myers. And I was like, oh, it gave me chill. I have chills mm. right now. I'm just explaining it. I didn't. <laughs> oh, it was crazy. But anyways, go okay, ahead. Okay, so oh, this, this, that's a crazy story. Uh, but I guess they do still deliver drugs or that's still a thing, but. This young pharmacist's assistant shows up. It's a teenage girl or a young woman. And uh, when he answers the door, she's got a crucifix necklace around her neck, like a gold crucifix necklace. And 
either the light reflects off of it or he just completely imagines a radiant pink light coming off of this crucifix and hitting him square in the brain. And he gets the overwhelming sense that he's being communicated with by a cosmic super intelligent being that exists on a satellite in space and that it is explaining to him that it, it's peeling back the uh, layers of reality all at once and showing him that he exists on all of these different ethereal planes and through different times and exists simultaneously in different times. And he somehow connects us all with uh, Russia and misinformation. And it all becomes this one big sort of convoluted paranoid uh, uh delusional religious uh experience for him and he ends up writing about it he ends up writing a novel that's somewhat loosely based on this experience uh an autobiographical novel and then uh that one's called Valis. uh vast oh gosh hold on give me one second i'll tell you exactly what Valis stands for but he so, oh yeah, I read Valis. Crazy! Did you read it? Ah, that sounds like so um, up my alley. In Valis, he that. he stars in Valis as himself, but he renames the character Horse Lover Fat, which uh, his well, I know it's a ridiculous name, but his name his name <laughs> Philip Dick actually translates into Horse Lover Fat. Philip is, I guess, Latin for horse lover, and Dick is Latin for fat. Uh, so he just renames the character after himself, but it's pretty similar to what happens with him. And that book has got a, a David Bowie like character in it. And it's, it's, it's pretty wild. Valis stands for vast active living intelligence wow. system, vast la- active living intelligence system. And he believes, and he believes that this thing exists Dude, and, you so know, it bad. speaks to him. Uh, and he later kind of laid out a lot of these thoughts in a, it's sort of collected in a, a, book called the exogesis of philip k dick and that's sort of like a summary of his thoughts on this subject and like different writings and everything and it's super dense it's probably the greatest literary rabbit hole of all um especially when you start seeing how some of the things <laughs> that he thought and were predicted uh, and he predicted in his writing sort of did end up becoming reality and how they were convinced that they were already those things already were reality or would become reality. And then many of them did not many of them, but you know, enough so that it makes you kind of double take when you start exploring this subject. And I believe that Philip K. Dick did lay a lot of the groundwork for modern life as we experience it now. Uh, I believe that science fiction as an art form is sort of a predictor of the future, not just an exploration of a potential future. But when we start writing out all of these potential future experiences, some of them pan out. Uh, and that's just, and that's just kind of how science fiction works. And Philip K. Yeah. Dick had sort of a preternatural sense for the way the future would unfold. So it's pretty easy to buy into the idea that he did experience these things in some twist of reality that we're unable to conceptualize because we haven't been struck in the face with a pink light from a crucifix. Uh, I, you oh, know, yeah. who's to say that it didn't happen? You know, who's to say, I mean, 
I have yet to have anybody really explain to me, you know, what this reality really is. I don't care what they're talking about. So, you know, you got to keep your mind open. Who knows? And some surely form, that actually leads me to a form or another. I actually That's wanted to sure. ask you a personal question. And this sort of leads me into that. Um, how do you know, Nick, that you're not a replicant? I, you know, I got, I have to say after, you know, I think that's the big question of the book and of the, especially of the movies. And I don't think that there's really, yeah, that's, it really is the big question, period. Maybe, maybe not, are we a replicant, but are we, you know, what are we, how do we exist? What is the meaning of this existence? Uh, you know, or is it all a simulation? Is it all a reality? does my experience of reality verify reality? Yeah, I mean, I, I brought this up before. I mean, I tell people all the time, you know, simulation theory at this point right now is a big cultural question that people are asking. You know, are we in a simulation and are we, are we not in a simulation? <laughs> and as I said, clearly we are in a simulation because if you boil down physics, it's nothing but, Absolutely. vast amounts of space between you know yes. particles right i mean it's the only question is is it an intentional As, simulation or is it an accidental simulation but it's, it's just our perception of reality. reality and that's you know all we can do is utilize our human tools of perception and try to piece together our reality and get uh affirmation from other people who we communicate with using those same sensory tools uh and that's and that is what Philip K. Dick is most famous for. For is sure. Really, really, really exploring this great philosophical question. Um, and he did it through a lot of his different writings, but his most popular writing, or at very least his most, I would say his most enduring writing, is Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Uh, which is the basis for the Blade Runner films and Blade Runner lore. Well, I, I, you know, here's the thing that I love about the, the, the entire Blade Runner universe is that it really is a genius metaphor for the human programming that we ourselves endure. We do, we are programmed, you know, we, our mind is a computer and we are programmed via our parents, via our family, via society, via religion. We mm. get these beliefs that are just foisted upon us subconsciously or consciously and I think there's at some point where we all have to, or we should go through this rite of passage, you know, to borrow a religious metaphor like Jesus going into the desert for 40 days and figuring out, you know, who am I really? And what is it? Am I just going to accept everything that's been given to me? Or am I going to say, you know, no, I am going, you know, that whole Joseph Campbell hero's journey, am I now going to claim my own independence, you know, and it's, so it's, it's a cool freaking. the question is relevant, whether we are androids or not, yeah, especially the question when you, is relevant. For what us we think humans. of as an android now, like, you know, Rosie, the robot or whatever from, you know, some very obvious machine is not necessarily, I mean, because the human body is often described as a machine and our minds are described as computers all the time because functionally it's the same thing. It's just the materials that they're made of and I guess the uh, the maker in question. Um, 
You know where they dealt with this really well that I love. Well, Battlestar Galactica uh, Battlestar, and the, new Battlestar the, uh, Galactica. the lore behind that borrows a great deal from the philosophies of Philip K. Dick and, uh, you know, not being able to tell yes. if the machines that are your adversaries are truly just machines or are they just another, you know, race of beings That are almost indistinguishable, especially, you know, obviously in the new one, that are pretty much indistinguishable from human beings. So the question was, are these cyborgs, are they, what are they? Yeah, are they what, how were they well, not Let's talk human? about the, the original human. novel first. You know, let's let's uh, kind of dig into that. Yeah, give me Okay, so me, the novel, the Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, follows something. private detective uh, Rick Deckard. As he is hired by uh, the Los Angeles police to track down some runaway replicants, skin jobs. Uh, They're actually not called skin jobs in the book, to my knowledge. I can't remember. I don't think so. Uh, But runaway replicants. And the story is pretty similar to the um, movie. Uh, Instead of being basically forced into it like happens in the movie, Rick is really excited to do it because uh, each bounty comes with a uh, uh, a reward and he wants to buy him and his wife a animal because in this future scenario uh in the distant future the earth has been destroyed by um or not destroyed but has been uh made barely livable by nuclear war and they kind of cling to earth but in this future uh the idea of empathy has become a huge part of life because so many animals have gone extinct and now it's become fashionable mm-hmm. to have an animal and to take care of it as sort of an outward showing of empathy. Um, and his goal is to replace his wow. uh, electric sheep, which he owns like a mechanical artificial sheep with a real animal because he's ashamed of having an artificial animal, even though, uh, you know, it would be hard for a passerby to tell the difference. And, and for him, it's really important that he has, yeah, you know the real thing, and it's really a big point of pride for him. Uh, yeah, it's almost like class. Absolutely, class it has everything to do with that. He uh, it's keeping right? up with the Joneses instead of uh, in the the movie. They have Deckard kind of like pressured into doing it, but in the book, he is very excited to do it to demonstrate to outwardly demonstrate his empathy. He is willing to go kill human-like machines that think and feel and speak and have thoughts of their own. So it's a real uh, paradox being presented by the writer here. <laughs> uh, it's a great irony. Uh, meanwhile, in the book, there's another. Su- there's a couple of other subjects that kind of got paired out of the film. Uh, one of the big ones is everybody in this future uh, is adherent to this religion called Mercerism. And Mercerism basically involves taking like the Oculus Rift, like VR headset and putting it on and existing as this martyr Mercer as he climbs a never ending hill and is pelted by stones uh, that he can't escape. And when you're in the headset, you feel the pain of the stones. You feel the pain of trudging up this mountain and the humiliation and everything. And this is also, you know, a uh, an exercise in empathy. Like you, you put yourself in Mercer's place, this ah. the, the martyr's place. 
And uh, throughout mm-hmm. the book, there's a television personality that's trying to disprove gotcha. Mercerism as fraud while this is happening. And as the book goes on, um, mm-hmm. one of the one of the, I think one of the most important scenes is that the TV personality comes on and and his his name is Buster Friendly. Buster Friendly, that's his name. Yes, Buster Friendly comes on and explains to everyone how Mercerism is uh, uh, a fraud, how it's you know not real and proves it beyond a shadow of a doubt that Mercerism is fake. And then moments after that happens, Deckard sees Mercer come to him in a vision. And uh, it really throws the idea of what is reality into question. Real quick topic, while we're on the topic of the book, before we move on to the next thing, I think it's important that Rick, the character, uh, be talked about just a little bit. His name is Rick Deckard which it's hard to believe that was not named after Rene Descartes, the philosopher who famously said, I think, therefore, I am. Ah, so cool. Um, So cool. And I think that question, that philosophical question, is really at the center of Blade Runner. Like I say, most of Philip K. Dick's writing as well. But he, Rick Deckard, is the very embodiment of that philosophical question. Yeah. Um. I love that. I think that's genius. And uh, you know what? I do love, especially when you have in movies or in novels where you have a, one of the writer just hits it, hits home at every single angle, this theme. And that is the theme for the book. That is the theme for the movie. But I love how, you know, he goes even more in depth because he, you can in a novel than in a movie. Of course. Where every, everywhere you learn, there's almost like little Easter eggs that are, that are, oh, what's this? Oh, it's the theme again. Oh, it's the theme again. That's, that's one of the great things about great literature is because you're always finding things. You're like, oh, I didn't see that until I read it the fourth time. <laughs> right? And yeah, I think I've probably read uh, Android's probably about probably four times, I would think. So yes, every time. And I read it again in preparation for this. I mean, we, this is our second, uh, uh, spoiler alert listeners. This is our second time recording this episode of this podcast, uh, which is actually turning out to be great. Cause we're, we learned some stuff from the first, uh, recording and are be able to attack this subject a little bit better, I think now, but, uh, <laughs> well, it's so dense. I mean, well, th- it's spoiler alert. Also, we had some technical issues, which is oh, really yeah. funny as we, for, if you think about from the beginning, we're talking about, Oh man, Get away from technology. You can't get away from technology. And when you can't get away from technology, you can't get away from glitches. <laughs> we're, at, we're, at, we're at the mercy of technology. As as human beings, we are at the mercy of technology. Like we can't escape uh, it now. There's there's really no way we're ever going to – because we would, we would be – without technology, we would be no different than animals. Even with all of our intelligence, without the application of our intelligence, we'd be in no different position than any other animal. I tell people all the time, you don't own your, one thing you learn in life is you don't own your things, your things own you. Absolutely. That's, that's another irony. Okay. So, and one of the emissions, so I read the book. I love the book. I couldn't, like I said, I couldn't believe how close the movie really you to the book. Um, but one of the emissions that really caught my eye was the mood organ. Mm. Now the mood organ was front and center of the opening scene of the book. And what it was, and correct me if I'm wrong, but they were able to, in the future, regulate their moods, kind of like, you know, foreshadowing 
Prozac, but way, way more intense because they could dial up different motivations. Oh, I need to feel more motivated. I want to feel more sad. I want to feel whatever it was. They could use the mood organ to go there. Yeah, designer mood pills. Uh, uh, And I think they call it a mood organ, but I thought that they were taking pills of some kind. Uh, I think that's right. Uh, Either way, like you say, they're able to completely change their mood at will to like a dial up range of uh, like very specific moods so um it's easy to see that being our moods are what make us human beings our feelings towards these like the uh events and the happenings in our life are you know one of the biggest parts of being a human being and uh by artificially changing our moods we are becoming ourselves artificial yeah, and, and that's a that's a great point. And it also points to something else that we were talking about at the beginning is that, you know, the more we understand now about our moods, we know that, you know, brain chemistry greatly influences our moods, mm. but so does our gut biome. So, so there are so many different things that affect us that the, it's like, wow, it's kind of like, you know, your car's not running. So you need to put oil in or you need this or that. Well, how is that different than us being robots? Because everybody is, you know, with, 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 uh, with things like anxiety or depression, you know, people are like, ah, kind of snap out of it, you know, or think differently, but that's not how it works. We know that now. And so we know that ice baths can, or ketamine, you know, psychedelic treatment can snap people right out of depression or, you know, eating, you know, a a gut bone, gut biome based diet. So it kind of hits that. But in regards to the mood organ, one thing that I loved was that one of my favorite writers right now, one of the greatest living short story writers, George Saunders, in his latest collection of short stories called 10th of December, there was a, one of my favorite short stories, it's called Escape from Spiderhead. And it basically is these group of, this group of people who are in a like prison facility and they have traded their prison time in exchange for allowing the, the, the facility to, to experiment on them. And so it's again, a George Saunders like question and, um, it's so rad and I really recommend for everybody, if you like sci-fi and short stories, check out George story, George Saunders, two books. The first is called civil war, civil war land and bad decline. All right. And that really deals with, with VR and the second collection that was written in like 1994, 1995. Um, and then his second collection came out, I think about five years ago and it's called the 10th of December. And again, both of those, although he's really embraced by the literary community, I don't think many sci-fi readers are aware of him. I'm not. But so I'm, I'm learning here such, and I'm, I'm excited to dig into some of his work for sure. Yeah, there's a great interview with him on uh, on Stephen Colbert. Stephen Colbert regards him as you know one of the greatest living writers. Okay. Um, so it, yeah, really cool. George really Saunders. Cool. Um, uh George the escape Saunders. from Spiderhead that you you or is it Escape from Spiderhead the story you were describing that yeah. uh yep and that's in okay of that December. story reminds me of other Philip K Dick works as well besides uh 
the mood organ from Electric Sheep. It also reminds me of the plot you're describing. I haven't read it yet, but that also reminds me of Clans of mm-hmm. the Alphane Moon to a degree, which is uh, sort of about a uh, an insane asylum planet. Kind of that's kind of a loose description of it. Uh, and while we're on the topic of you know different elements of this, PK Dick also has. Uh, a couple of different books about substances or products changing reality themselves. Like uh, there's a book called the three stigmata of Palmer Eldritch. And that one is about drugs specifically about drugs that you can take that alter reality itself. Or is it your perception of reality or what? And then also, also you, which is a product that is so universal that it exists in all forms and is able to completely change all of reality around you through a topical spray or a salve or what have you. And uh, both of those books kind of uh, carry some of the themes that I feel like are uh, in that George Saunders work you were describing Uh, at least. Well, that's that's so cool, man. I, I, you know, the more it's, it's interesting how, you know, he doesn't just hit this, these themes in it, you know, continually within one work like uh, androids, but also throughout his entire career and how he just hits it again and again and again. And for me, it's, that's, that's just one of the biggest questions. I I feel like as a person, he just got hung up on that question and was never able to get past that, like to philosophically overcome that question, which you can't, you can't over, you can't, it's impossible, but most of us just kind of ignore it or at very least, you know, think about it in uh allotted times he just allowed the quest he just allowed the question to consume him completely and uh you know we're all the better off for that because we've got all of his works now to you know guide us into a future yeah yeah well i tell you one of the uh, the the final deviation for me that um from the book to the original movie was the city aesthetic um within the 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 blade runner movie universe that Mm. that blade runner universe when i first saw it is one of the most striking things and i know so many people that just like to watch the first movie to just feel like they're escaping into it ridley scott captured that in such a way and created that in such a way that even today it stands up as far as special effects go i can watch it again and again and again the special effects completely uh i mean they have they've barely aged at all i mean there are no awkward special effects in that movie which is something you can't say about almost any 80s movie at all (laughs) and it's even even other ridley scott movies even alien the one of the greatest well that was from 1979 actually but very near the same time even that one has some pretty obvious uh you know pretty dated stuff in it and blade runner seems more real as time goes by and it kind of it definitely speaks to the oh my goodness it definitely speaks to the prescience of uh philip k dick's mind um and ridley scott's mind too to both of the minds it it definitely speaks to the prescient of philip k dick's mind and as you say also to uh uh ridley scott's mind for sure yeah and which brings us to the blade runner movie the og sci-fi great sci-fi movie in my opinion and probably your opinion of all time i would think so. i mean if i was ranking the sci-fi movies it would definitely be in the top five for sure i mean it's a strong contender for the first one i'm really bad about landing on a 
very favorite thing. And like that seems to kind of change around a lot. But Blade Runner is one of the few movies that many people agree outdoes the book. I don't personally think that. But when people say that, I can absolutely see their argument. The mood of it, the tone, the music, the acting, the costume design all come together to form this perfect vehicle. Um, and it's so funny because the the book is set in 2019 and the movie is set in 2019 and that was just last year. And during 2019, Blade Runner seemed as new as ever. And they, yeah. And they released the sequel and people had trouble with the sequel because they were still so happy with the original. Like it's so hard to compete with the original. And, uh, Oh, so that came yeah. out in 1982, so 38 years ago now. Uh, and, and, and in that 30, and in, in, in think about how in all that time, this movie, which was really, you know, we've talked about this, was really the first cyberpunk mm-hmm. movie. Mm-hmm. It has influenced so many films, so many, the aesthetic of it from Ghost in the Shell to even like Akira, it's so amazing that it has stood the test of time. It is still that good. But it's, you know, it came out a couple of years before I was born. I was born in 83. So it came out one year before I was born. Uh, and it wasn't a big popular movie. You know, uh, when it was in theaters, it did marginally well. Uh, I think it turned a small profit and sort of disappeared out of theaters people at the time were uh, feeling the star Wars glow, you know, um, uh, Harrison Ford was Han Solo. He was already Indiana Jones. And a lot of people go into this movie and it's, it's darker. It's complex. It's um, heavily philosophical. There are no easy answers in the movie and for sci-fi at the time, in popular culture, which was, it was really started. Sci-fi was really starting to gain a strong foothold in popular culture. Star Wars being such a phenomenon and, you know, even alien that had come before that was a big hit and, or had come out before Blade Runner and was a really big hit. And there were other, plenty of other examples, 2001, a space odyssey from maybe a decade before. And it was really starting to take a foothold. And this movie comes out and it, pushes the envelope of what science fiction should mean to uh, viewers uh, to, to the point where a lot, it turned a lot of people off, to be honest with you. A lot of people wanted to see the, the laser gun battles and the G whiz and the flash Gordon and all that stuff. And they walked. I, I, I gotta tell you, I, when I went and saw it and I saw it in the movie theater and I was very disappointed because I wanted, I thought I was going to see Han Solo, and I was so young that I was like, I don't get this. This is way too complex. It's way too. I don't know if it was complex intellectually, but it was emotionally Absolutely. challenging. It wasn't just that. Oh, wait, we're on an easy adventure. Good guys versus bad guys. It's a it's a moody movie. It makes you think a lot. The music is very moody. Uh, you, you, there's no clear cut good guy and bad guy in the movie. Uh, even the, you know, you're as an audience, you think Roy Batty, uh, Rutger Hauer's character, the, uh, Nexus six, the leader of the Nexus six rebellion is the bad guy, but all he wants to do is live longer. 
And his motivation is pretty understandable, to be honest with you. Like he's a slave. He's a man that was enslaved and all he wants to do is escape slavery and escape this death sentence, this three, the next, you know, if you haven't seen the movie, if you've never seen it, replicants are uh, given Nexus six replicants are given a three or four year lifespan. And after that, they just stop functioning and he discovers this and it causes him to, you know, go berserk. And, uh, you're supposed yeah. to think of this as the bad guy, but why, how is that the bad guy? You know what I mean? Like he, he's a victim in, you know, every way you can think of. And, uh, that's the kind of messaging that I think a lot of people weren't ready for at the time, but every year that passes, it becomes easier to vibe with that message because our reality has in many ways caught up with the movie. And instead of looking like some, dystopian future it looks more and more and more like our regular present and uh yeah and 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 i think that's why the movie has you know year after year has become more more and more of a cult phenomenon yep right because it's it's just so the, the question just becomes more relevant and more relevant and more relevant and also i think as we got away from you know, this Harris, I really think the Harrison Ford popularity as this really fun, you know, hero type blockbuster popcorn character, uh, you know, this great actor. Uh, I think that as we got away from that, people were able to view this with a more objective lens. And, uh, and, and in turn, Harrison Ford's incredible mm. acting as you know, really shines because one of the, I, I told you this before when with, you know, it really, as I watched the movie um, and rewatched it, I was struck by the fact uh, that he was able to bring, even though the movie was dark and it was moody, he was able to bring his incredible humor to the role. And and I think that was kind of missing from 2049, but it, it reminded me of like when you go and you eat Indian food, as opposed to some other types of food, with Indian food, you get almost every single taste in one meal. You've got your chutneys, you've got your, uh, you've got your spices, you've got, so you've got this sweet, salty, savory, all of it in one meal. So when you get out, you're not thinking, wow, I need dessert because your palate has been satisfied in every respect. And I think his, when you go back and you rewatch the movie, his absolutely, there's s- scenes that where he's, smirking and being coy there are scenes where he is obviously terrified for his life uh there are scenes where he uh falls back into acting uh at like he's a cop undercover and becomes an undercover you know uh, character and he does it all so yeah how about how about how about his like impersonation of that goofy when he's in when he was interviewing the uh, the the dancer? Yeah, he's uh, and he's oh god, where is he from? He's uh, from some government agency checking in on like uh, peeping toms and uh, it's it's such a ridiculous it's such a ridiculous cover story, but he falls back on it so easily, and it's because Harrison Ford has such incredible charisma, um, and I think that is a really good. Uh, it speaks for the movie itself is because he is so human. You know what I mean? He's such a huge, such a Mm -hmm. relatable actor for people. That's one of his great strengths. That's why people loved uh, uh, Han Solo and people love uh, Indiana Jones is because even though he's 
brave, heroic, and smart, and all of those things. He's also very relatable. He's kind of an everyman, and he does carry yeah. that everyman character in a way into Blade Runner. And, but he, what he brings is every man's uh, uh, existential crisis. You know what I mean? Instead of bringing every man's like a uh, fun adventure uh, that every man exp- or wants to experience, what he does is he embodies the uh, bewildering dilemma of reality that every man experiences. And he does it just as effectively as he does the Han Solos and the Indiana Joneses. Yeah. It's, 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 it's really cool because it is a time capsule and it is him at the peak of his powers. You know, when he he is just firing on all cylinders, he's young, he's charismatic. He's just, he really nails it. Um, One of the things that, uh, as I did some research on the, uh, on the book and the movie is that I didn't you know, I didn't realize, but the, they got the name Blade Runner, not when they were naming the the movie, but Ridley Scott in the was not happy with the fact that in the book that his character uh, profession was they were just called bounty hunters. And right. So he wanted a, a cooler name, and so the screenwriter um, was scanning his bookcase and just thinking, "What the hell are we going to call him? What are we going to call him?" And he found he saw a uh, a book that he had. That just an obscure book that was based on smuggling of medical supplies across mm. borders, and it was called Blade Runner. And so he was like, "Oh shit, man! We ought to call these these this profession instead of bounty hunters. We'll call them Blade Runners." And it was so cool that Ridley Scott was like, "Oh yeah, we're gonna call them Blade Runners, and that's what we're calling the movie." What a stroke I, of genius! It's really what I love about their application of that name in the movie is they don't try to explain it. They like mm-hmm. the intro to the movie is the scroll and it ends with the words, uh, these uh, officers are called Blade Runners and mm-hmm. Blade Runner. All of the rest of the writing is white and Blade Runner is in red. And when you see it, it has such an impact on you that you don't question the meaning of the word. You know what it is. You don't need to know its origin. You know that it's the thing. And that's the title of the movie. And you never have, you never have to feel like there needs to be some explanation for the name. And this is coming from someone who read the book of several times, you know what I mean? And they don't mention the phrase Blade Runner in the book at all. It's not in the book. Obviously, like you said, it came from that uh, medical smuggling book. And it fits so perfectly into the the lore of this world that it just it, it's just seamless. And I really it's think one of the that, coolest names ever, man. That's for sure. I just think that that's Ridley Scott's uncanny ability to take a project and maximize it. Uh, yeah. To re- and uh, we're gonna uh, I, next week we're gonna do Alien and Aliens, mm-hmm. or, or uh, ne- two weeks from now. That'll be the next show. And we'll yeah. get into uh, more of Ridley Scott's incredible ability to uh, bring the best possible uh, pro- or best possible result from whatever parts he has laying around. Um, but he definitely executed that so amazingly well with Blade Runner, and that's why it's still talked about that way. Um, the, yeah. sequ- the sequel, uh, you know... <laughs> Uh, no, it wasn't Ridley Scott and it wasn't Harrison Ford at the height of their powers. One more thing, though, before we leave the OG movie is that 
um, I think we have to hit on, for me, and I think all cinema files, the Rutger Hauer, mm. his end of the movie speech, holy shit, man, let's listen to that right now. Quite an experience to live in fear, isn't it? That's what it is to be a slave. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tenhauser Gate. All those moments will be lost in time. Like tears. Dude, that was so dope, was it not? It, it never gets old. Like, no matter how many times you you hear it, it still has the same sort of, like, goosebump-inducing uh, effect. And, you know, Rutger Hauer's... His fame is largely based on this pretty obscure character because he was able to bring such a powerhouse performance to this entity that just wanted to live and was just so angry and frustrated by not being able to do that. And it's such a human thing. And, uh, it's a machine expressing this and that's just such a confusing thing. No. And that's, what's so fascinating about it. And you know what else is fascinating? I don't think it was in the screenplay. No, it's not. Yeah. Rutger Howard more or less ad libbed. I, I don't think he came up with it while he was sta- while the camera was rolling, but he, you know, wrote his own lines for that scene. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, wow. 
Isn't that crazy? Like something that small in his entire career, he will be remembered for that stroke of writing genius. Remember, That's fascinating. And acting too, not just writing. Like he, oh. he breathed such life into that monologue that, you know, it's this day it's thought of as just being this, when, when you see, you know, uh, AFI hundred years of cinema commercials, you're almost certain to see that iconic image of Roy Batty with the dove held in his hand, pressed up against his chest, because it is such an important moment in cinema. And it just speaks to the confluence of all of these ideas. And it, when you start thinking about this and you, especially when you've got the context of Philip K. Dick's predictions and his, his uh, body of work, it really does deepen that, Philip K. Dick rabbit hole further and further, like Rutger Hauer's un, uh, amazing ability to create this entire moment for cinema history, really pushing Philip K. Dick's ideas deep, deep, deep into this cultural subconscious this way. And, uh, yeah. And it, you go ahead. No, I was just going to say, because he created such a rich world, that's the genius of Philip K. Dick. It's not just, okay, I wrote this great book, but if you create, he created such deep questions that, you know, inside of this amazing world that people could just build off of it and build off of it. That's fascinating. In the book, the uh, question of whether or not Rick is himself a replicant isn't... Uh, all that explored. That's not really, uh, there is a scene where he is under the impression that he is a replicant or somebody accuses him of being one, but it's kind of cleared up and it doesn't really become a lingering question in the book. But in Ridley Scott's Blade Runner film, the question of whether or not Deckard is himself a replicant is a lot more, uh, looming it's not really resolved in the film. And it left a lot of audience audiences wondering if he was supposed to be um, in the, the, the last scene in the movie, if you'll remember uh, Rick and Rachel decide to run off together. And as they do, they see um, a origami unicorn left by one of the other cops, uh, Edward James, almost character. And mm -hmm. previous to that, uh, Deckard had daydreamed about a unicorn. And the implication there is that Edward James almost has somehow has access to uh, Deckard's daydreams and therefore maybe his memory and therefore maybe all of those things are fake and implants. And the suggestion is that all of the other cops know that Deckard is actually just a replicant. But wow. that's so it, heavy. It yeah. adds another layer to that, you know. I think, therefore, I am quandary uh, that we all experience. But then Blade Runner twenty forty nine came along, and that's not, you know, they they kind of like snipped that question in the bud. Uh, well, before we get to that, before we get to twenty forty nine, one more, just a little bit of trivia: Ridley Scott and the screenwriter. Both of them had never read the novel. How, Going into the project, mm -hmm. yeah, how, they've never read. They never read it. How crazy is that? Go figure. <laughs> uh, it, very interesting. I wonder who decided to uh, 
like did the studio decide that they wanted to do the movie or I I'd, I'd like to learn more about the history of that. There should be a documentary about this. Well, oftentimes what will happen is that because there's a saying that nobody in Hollywood reads. And so mm. what they typically have is they'll have an intern who will at an agency or at a studio and they will prepare a summary and kind of what they call a beat sheet. And it's every, ah. okay, this happens at this plot point. This happens at this plot point. These are the themes. And, and so you can take a two, you know, 250 to a thousand page novel and break it down to 10 pages. And so in all likelihood, that's probably what happened and that's what they worked off of. Um, How interesting. Is, yeah, because I mean, it, it follows the, the course of the novel in some ways, but in other respects, it doesn't. So it's an independent yeah. piece, but it just, I would think that Philip K. Dick would hate to see his work literally translated. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I, I feel like if they were, if you were going to try to make a story that would please the writer, then to carry on the story and to expand it and, you know, add these new elements to it is really, I think what he would want. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm so anyways, for a long dead writer here, but, uh, well, one thing we do know again is that the book he, he did see, he died before the movie came out. Right. But he did see an early right. cut and he did, he said that, wow, they captured the aesthetic for the world exactly how I saw it in my mind. And so I think that was a, a beautiful gift to give a tortured, clearly a tortured soul, mm-hmm. you know, before he died, like, wow, that this is, they really nailed it. Cause I think, so many writers are like Alan Moore were like, I hated it. I hated it. Sure. I hated it. You know? Well, I think it so, probably was also a little while being a great gift to him. Surely, you know, an affirmation of his genius also must've been chilling for a person who can't tell if the realities in their head are a shared reality or a delusion to see his imagination brought to life that way must have been staggering. I can only imagine uh, a person. I mean, because he he's suffered from schizophrenia, uh, or, you know, by all accounts. And uh, for a schizophrenic person or a person who suffers from schizophrenic tendencies to uh, experiencing some something like that. Uh, especially when it's related to the subject matter that we've been discussing here, this whole, what is reality thing? Um, it's, it, you know, his, his, the simulation running in his mind being made manifest to everyone else in the world right in front of him. And, you know, right before he's at death's door as well. So not that, not that he knew he was at death's door, but uh, just, uh, again, that rabbit hole runs so, so deep. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no doubt. Okay, so listen, so now 2049, we pick up. What I love about the the sequel is that we pick up with the story, right? At the end of Blade Runner, the original Blade Runner, Deckard and Rachel the Robot, they run off the replicant. They run off together, and this sets up the new film. So we, we, ca- we pick up with Gosling, who is a, a new Blade Runner, mm-hmm. a new generation of Blade Runners, and he is on the hunt for not a replicant, but a, the rep, the love child of these two. So he's on the hunt for a replicant love child. Yeah, the movie opens because. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, well, at least the, you know, this is the driving force of the new movie because this replicant love child could disrupt the entire social order. Right. Reason being is because, like you said, we've got these 
creature, these these robots, these replicants, pseudo-human, that, you know, there's that philosophical question, ethical question of, should we be using them for slaves? Well, here could be one more reason, one more, you know, weight that we put on the scales of, yes, these are sentient beings, we should give them human rights, because now they can replicate. And there is that fear that if the population finds out about this, this holy shit, what are we going to do? It's kind of it's kind of a mirror for slavery. People don't understand. Absolutely. A lot of people don't understand that America was built. The economy of America was built on slavery. the whole world without slavery. Yeah, the whole world was built on slavery. Absolutely. Before industrialization, we achieved maximum productivity with freaking slave labor. That's and so that's kind of where they are in the future. Right. And uh, that's, and that's what, another big philosophical question is like the ability of the human mind to dehumanize another human and to, to uh, say to yourself, they're less than me and I should be allowed to exercise control over them for that reason is at the root of this writing is to say, well, how do I know they're less than me? What makes them less than me? What list of things do I, what check box or what boxes do they have to check in order to be considered a human? How do they, you know, uh, achieve that rank and this ability to conceive children, which in Blade Runner 49 is revealed that, that, uh, that Rachel was able to do that. And previous to that, no replicant had ever been able to do it. Uh, this threat. And, and what, a, what a pressing, what a pressing question, Winston, because you know, we were dealing with we've been dealing with this question at least in America since the beginning mm-hmm. with slavery. We were dealing with it in World War II with concentration camps and the Holocaust. We're dealing with it now with immigrants mm-hmm. and sex trafficking. It is something that is so pervasive. It might at the, the core of, of humanity. It might be the most pressing question of all because we do it again and again and again. Well, it's, it goes back to that subject of empathy, and that's really the root of the novel. And that's something that I think – when people talk about the, the films being greater than the book, that's the one thing that I'm like, I don't know because this exploration of empathy is such a powerful part of the book, and it's not quite as relevant to the movies. I mean it's sort of a residual topic in the movies, but in the book – it is supremely important to the plot of the book and empathy is in modern society. I feel like the world can be divided into two people, two types of people and, you know, creating binary Mm -hmm. systems is always an unwise thing to do, but just for the sake of a podcast, you know, uh, and there are people who see empathy as, uh, a virtue. And those are there, there are people who see empathy as weakness. And these are the two forces that I think are most at odds. And, you know, you could say good or evil or, you know, whatever conservative versus liberal or whatever labels you want to put on it. But the truth is that some people don't think that feeling what another person feels intentionally is a wise thing to do. And some people think that the opposite is true, that it's unwise to not feel try to attempt to feel what another person is feeling, no matter who they are. 
Um, I fall, I certainly fall into mm-hmm. the category of I'm a pro empathy person for sure. And I obviously you are as well, but there is that great struggle in society to know when is enough empathy, you know, uh, what social programs should be set up, what, uh, chances should be giving, how, how much should people be made to rely on their, their quote unquote bootstraps or how much should one person be allowed to control the lives of another person? Yeah, I mean, it's, it also goes to really, to really our own happiness. The whole Buddhist, you know, the thrust of Buddhism is all about compassion for others and that we, until we can exercise compassion for ourselves and compassion for others, we're always going to be suffering internally. So without that empathy, the lack of that empathy, that's the thrust of that is that, you know, we're not going to be happy. Society right. may work a little better, but we're not going to be happy as individuals. And, you know, so without a- without that inner peace, which, you know, I, I honestly think all of society, all of philosophical thought is the pursuit of inner peace. Uh, not necessarily answers because it only takes you a sh- short time of studying philosophy to realize that there are no answers that you're never going to be satisfied <laughs> with an answer, but oh to just gosh. try to be at peace with that situation. And, uh, I think all of human history is the struggle to find that. And, you know, we deal with all these new existential problems. The more technology changes and evolves, the more complex this question becomes, uh, about, you know, now, for example, Artificial intelligence, not just androids and you know replicants and Nexus sixes, but artificial intelligence in the form of software exists already and will be sufficiently advanced, you know, within the foreseeable future to have a human-like personality. And this is going to be a problem that we are going to have to deal with. And how we approach this problem is the very essence of this question we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, I I think that what, uh, again, what's one of the cool things, the theme that is expounded upon even more is that, you know, you have the situation where Deckard runs off with the replicant and they have this love. But in the, the 2049, you have a situation where Gosling, his girlfriend is a, now he's a, he's a replicant, right? He's a Blade Runner and a replicant. And his girlfriend, her name is Joy, which is ironic, but she is a consumer Mm -hmm. product. She is just like Siri and Alexa, except she's a a, a hologram. And this is becoming an even more important issue because, you know, we've got like the movie Her. Genius movie, right? Spike Jones and Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and it's it's like he's Spike Jones basically fall I mean uh Joaquin Phoenix basically falls in love in the movie Her with Alexa or Siri. And um and that is a, a pressing question because people are just like Ryan Gosling was in the movie Lars and the Real Girl, where he falls in love mm-hmm. with a sex doll, right? But this it's a, it's the non-sci-fi version of the same question. <laughs> yes, yes. And and here we go and you know, Philip K Dick had predicted this human non-human love how long ago? I mean, as early as the 50s. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> and you know, and it's becoming, you know, it is it is it is our reality. It's not becoming our reality. It is our reality. Uh, you know, what can be considered uh human now? 
you know, and uh, not just like what objects or what programs are human, but is it human to love a computer program? Is that inhuman? But if you're doing it, doesn't it automatically make it human? Mm, you know, if good point. Uh, so, uh, and he saw these pitfalls of the development of technology way ahead, way, way ahead. And he, you know, wrote these novels and the more of them you read, the more you see how much of these things he saw and how vividly he saw this question and attempted to, you know, attack it from all these different angles. Um, no, I and love Blade that. Runner 24. I think, I think Denis Villeneuve, the director of Blade Runner 2049, um, he did a pretty good job. You know, I think if you're going to make a sequel to Blade Runner, uh, I think he did about as good as a person was going to be able to do. You know, uh, if if I'm rating the movie, I'd give it, you know, a B plus, B, B plus. But if I'm rating his job as a director, I'd give it an A plus. You know what I mean? I'd... It's like writing the sequel to Stairway to Heaven. I, I loved it, though. I, it I really did love it. I have friends that this is... I have a one friend. He's really into sci-fi. He loves the original Blade Runner. But he says 2049 is the greatest sci-fi movie ever. It's his favorite movie. So, um, And there's a lot There's a lot to love in it. You know what I mean? Ryan Gosling is... You know, I, I don't mean to talk shit. He's not exactly Harrison Ford. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? He, he's, he's great. You know, he's likable. You could definitely like him pretty easily i think his character's name is joe in the blade runner 2049 if i'm not mistaken mm-hmm. and like literally like the average joe you know what i mean is <laughs> yeah is what is what they're going for just a relatable person even though in the book or in the movie he's not a real person he yeah. is himself or he is himself or, and it's known to everyone that he is a replicant yeah and even though that's the case he's still presented as the human center of the film and uh his struggle to understand the the um human idea of love and his experience with love also with a a synthetic being like like you said it's joy like the siri of the future and that love is just as real and tangible as a love between two human beings yeah and if it's not who's to say it's not how can you say it's not how can you tell where's the where's the yardstick for that yeah it's it's fascinating one of the one of the cool things that i like about the movie is that you know all of these as gosling is pursuing this mystery and you know it's a mystery it's a noir mystery Mm -hmm. like the first one but one of the even more of a mystery really than the first one is that as he is uh trying to track down this love child and figure out who it is, the clues start to point to him being the love child of Decker yes. and Rachel the Replicant. And um, it turns out that the real love child is a woman mm-hmm. who is like this genius artist. She lives in this hermetically sealed... Spoiler alert, you know. Yeah, spoiler alert. <laughs> I think it's all spoiler alert. But yeah, she yeah. lives in this hermetically sealed building um, and he finds her and she is making, she's so genius at what she does. She makes perfect, indistinguishable memories for replicants. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that she had made the memories for him right. that he starts to think, you know, this is what my childhood is. And so it just goes back to that 
that original, uh, the original question in the original movie, you know, what is a memory? Is a memory real? It seems real. And, and you know what's fascinating about that is we've now shown that one of the most unreliable things in witness testimony in criminal cases is memories. Oh, yes. Because we now know that we reshape our memories all the time based on new experiences. Think about that for a moment. You do it, I do it, we all do it. We reshape the memories. We reinterpret them. That's fascinating. Um, another thing that I thought was pretty cool was that when he goes in, we had the uh, void comp test in, mm -hmm. the, uh, in the original one. Well, now he has to, when he gets back into, you know, he checks back into headquarters, um, he has to take a test which uses passages from Pale Fire, uh, the novel, by Vladimir Nabokov. And I was talking to a buddy of mine is a massive sci-fi fan. He is the lead singer. His name's Jared Watson of a band called Dirty Heads. Great band. Very cool. Uh, reggae, uh, yeah, reggae band. He's a big fan of the podcast. And uh, we were talking about it. And he's like, dude, I went back and I reread Pale Fire. But my question to you is, why did he? Why did Ryan Gosling have to take this test? I didn't quite get that. Are you asking me? Yes. Okay. Well, I the my interpretation of that is that as a machine, as 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 a tool for the police department, it was in the police department's best interest that he run at nominal levels so that they know know that they can control him. So if he mm. if he takes this test and his readings are off in any way, it's seemingly in the department's best interest to simply destroy him and purchase another one. Whoa. And treat that's how far from being treated as a human his his existence is, is that he is subject to this bizarre test uh, to make sure that he doesn't respond to any emotional cues, even in like high-intensity situations. Otherwise, his value is you know reduced to zero holy shit and probably because they've had so many instances of replicants going haywire oh, yeah. in the first movie oh, yeah. and killing people wow that's uh, but you know if you're a slave and realizing that you're a slave you stand up to your master are you going haywire or are you just expressing your humanity and your individuality mm. you know this this goes back to like the bible and satan rebelling from heaven from God and you know in uh Dante or uh gosh what is it well Adam and Eve did it too I mean Adam and Eve their oh. what their real sin was was they ate from the, the fruit from the tree of knowledge which gave them you know the knowledge of, of what is good and what is evil and that in turn gave them choice which allowed them to have free will and so was that really a sin that you're like listen I don't I don't want to be controlled. I was thinking I want to have free will. Exactly. How is that a sin? And this is Prometheus. This is the, this is the, this is Prometheus. You know, this is the Promethean lore in um, paradise mm -hmm. lost by John Milton. When Satan is cast down from heaven, he, his first thought about upon arriving in hell is that he says to himself, well, the mind is its own place and in it, you can make, a hell of heaven wow, and a heaven so, of that's hell. That's so true, too, and, man. That's such a true, true, truism. I love that. Because that's reality, right? At the end of the day, we create our yeah, own Yeah, that life. is reality. 
And that's what yeah, we create our own realities as well, you know? I mean, and it, whether or not they're hells or heavens is up to us in a lot of respects. Of course, that is a very uh, privileged thing for me to get to say. I, I you know, I'm currently sitting on my paid-for house in my <laughs> climate-controlled environment. Here. I tell people, man, these are, uh, these are first-world problems that a lot of us have. Some people, we, you know, we have the luxury of, of contemplating these philosophical questions. Yeah, it's... Yeah, until you get to a certain level of luxury, you're on. It, it's difficult to contemplate philosophical questions because you're contemplating survival questions, and you know that speaks a lot to our technological society that we're able to sit here and you know contemplate these things using mm. technology. Yeah. To do so. No, so, fascinating, dude. Uh, that was well, such a uh, good one, man. I love it. I mean, I I tell you, it's. I'm so oh, absolutely again. I think in, in contemplating, you know. All, the, the book, the, the, the original movie, and the sequel, what I really came away with it was, again, a, a, an incredible appreciation for Philip K. Dick and the, the, his o, almost OCD obsession with these really important questions in which sprung from that imagination and that obsession just an entire world that I don't think 2049 will be the last you know, movie that we'll see. I think it may be in 20, 30 years. Right. Well, I'd be I'd be shocked. Yeah, I'd yeah. be shocked if it was the last one. I, um, but, but you know, it'd you be really know. cool to see a series they, well, too. Well, I would love to see a Netflix or a, a HBO series on it. Also, they probably I, that's what I would expect to happen next. I would I would you know cross my fingers on yeah. that. Hopefully, it's produced well and everything. But uh, I think so too. And I, as time goes on on the podcast, you know, we'll work Philip K. Dick works into the mix to you know keep uh exploring this idea this mind space as we go on of course we you know if it, i feel like we could probably have a podcast entirely <laughs> about him and his works and his career and I, I mean that the whole like we could record it every two weeks just as easily because there's so much depth to this rabbit hole but you know uh i think just kind of bringing him back in rounding back uh rounding him back in to the conversation here and there is going to be you know kind of the way this podcast works yeah uh but these 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 themes that he explores will pretty much always be a part, I think, because I more than just uh, reviewing science fiction or you know talking about the coolest new science fiction movies. What I think you and I really want to do, and hopefully the listeners can vibe with this, is to explore this mind space to uh, you know to to ask the tough questions, to explore the questions that science fiction as a genre opens up in the mind i love that um, and this was a great one dude and i really appreciate it make sure you guys check out uh the uh instagram accounts for both of us i'm at infinite worlds magazine uh nick is at at nick the tooth and you can check us both out on instagram we got uh pretty good hats going on there uh you can find infinite worlds on instagram at at iw sci-fi mag we're on facebook you can go to the website www.com infiniteworldsmagazine.com check us out go buy some copies of the magazine itself we sell physical copies not everything is high tech technology alright and on that note all hail Philip K. Dick our theme song was by Christopher Whitaker and our podcast graphics were by Sam the Man you can find him at monitor underscore studio on Instagram adios adios